0: If you took time to think about every problem and trouble with the world, do you think you could discover a red thread that sews them all together? Could you discover the base of every war and every white lie with mankind? The source of every small to large conflict. So, for application's sake, let me let me make the point really come to life. Think of every problem or instance you've come across this week, you've come across today, you've come across in this moment with your spouse, with your coworker, with your boss, roommate, waitress, kids, whatever. Is there a red thread that sews them all together? Is there a base understanding for every little thing? Well, our initial gut reaction would be, well, <laughs> no. That's, there's a number of reasons, Casey. Silly dilly. There's a number of reasons. To say every conflict can be reduced down to a small silver thread is a sim- single underlying issue of like, oversimpl- simplification. You're oversimplifying, Casey. That's naive. But what would the Bible say? Does the Bible think that there is a single red thread? And the answer to that would be yes. The Bible would say that all external fallacies and fights is due to an internal monster that has made its way to the surface. And we see this from the book of James in the New Testament, in the New Testament portion of the Bible. And this red thread is a very simplistic idea, very simplistic idea where it says, you want, but you don't get. You want, but you don't get. Allow me to read this to you as we set up what we'll be studying in the book of Acts. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You want, but you don't get. To want something but not receive it according to James or according to scripture Is the source of every small to large conflict that mankind faces. Now, do you agree with that? What are your thoughts? I mean, you can write them down in your journal, don't yell them out. Let me ask a different question Is there anything you're wanting but not getting? Is there anything in life right now that you're wanting but not getting? I've heard it put this way. What James, the idea that James, the author, is getting at is this idea of owing. It's this idea of owing. You, you somebody, something, owe me. You owe me. To be more precise, the author laid out the internal monsters this way, and I think this is great. This is how the author laid them out. Guilt is I owe you, like I owe you something. Guilt is I owe you. The monster of anger is you owe me. The monster of greed is I owe me. And lastly, which will be the main monster we'll be seeking to understand and tame today is the hideous and dangerous monster of jealousy that God owes me. That God owes me. See, if you were here last week and remember, Paul the minister who was Saul the murderer stepped into a synagogue full of religious people and God-fearing individuals, both Jewish and Gentiles, that being people who are not Jewish. And the rulers see Paul sitting in the back. They see Paul sitting in the pews and they approach them at the end of their time together. They approach them at the end of the service and say, give us a word of encouragement, old chap. Something to spice us up, to inspire us. Which was their first mistake. See why? Because Paul stood up and delivers his first recorded sermon ever in the Bible. And Paul cleared his throat and he waved his arms about. And you guys remember how he started off? What did he say? He's like, listen. Paul stands up and he's like, listen. But again, if you remember, no pats on the back were had, no soft jelly-filled words were eaten up. Simply Paul entied the netting of their entire religious and faith system in one sermon. Basically, Paul lit, lit like mad fire in that sermon. Now, I want us to see how everybody responds to his talk. Look, we're actually going to start in verse 42. Look down at verse 42 in your Bibles or up on the screen. Let's see how they respond, if you guys remember last week, to this like momentous, beautiful, impactful sermon from Paul. As they went out, the people begged. The people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath, next Saturday. They're imploring Paul and Barnabas to continue. They're like, please come back and teach us again. Please. In verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, so Paul and Barney stick around. Look at this, the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered. Almost the entire city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Let me say it this way. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they wanted but did not get. When the Jews saw the crowds, they wanted but did not receive. So everybody here knows the bite of jealousy. Everybody here knows the monster of jealousy. It's a monster that lurks under all of our beds. Christian or unchristian, nine or 90, male or female, all of us have and will experience jealousy. Perhaps some of us tonight are dealing with jealous hearts even in this moment. To hear that these Jewish men and women were pricked with the jealous pain, with a sting of jealousy, is a pain all too familiar. All of us could easily just say, I feel you. But this Jewish community was jealous by the eager, roaring. What were they jealous by? The eager, roaring, growing, captivated crowds. They see all this happening. Everybody from all over comes. And they say to themselves, we could never do this. They think to themselves, this is what we want. Now, before I continue talking about jealousy, I think um, a definition will be helpful because this is a word with many different applications and understandings. I, I believe it's a monster with many teeth. Psychology today sort of backs me up and describes it like this. Jealousy is a complex emotion that encompasses many different kinds of feelings, ranging from fear of abandonment to rage and humiliation. Jealousy can strike both men and women when a third-party threat to a valued relationship is perceived it can be a problem among siblings competing for parental um, attention or envy after a successful, or or, excuse me, how was I going? Or envy after a more successful friend. So it's this complex rapture of emotions that more often than not, probably more like 100% of the time, is a triad. Jealousy is a triad, that there's a third-party threat. There's a third-party something threat. But I would say the best way to understand jealousy is to understand zeal. If you want to understand jealousy, you must. We must understand zeal. Zeal for what we want. See, for the Jewish community here, they were zealous. They were zealous. Zeal for the God they knew, zeal for the law, zeal for their understanding their way. But it's a zeal that leads to destruction. You can look at any dictionary, you probably see the word like vehemence against somebody. It's a zeal that many dictionaries describe as anger, wrath, or indignation. Now, if it's your first time here, or if you've been here a few times, again, welcome. But maybe you're thinking really an entire talk on jealousy. And I don't know, but I've been thinking about that all week. Am I really going to take this entire talk and do something on jealousy? Um, it felt super, it felt small to make an entire talk about just jealousy. But over the course of my time this week and more and more trying to study or dive into the Bible, really understand what's being said, the more I, the more I realize it's like Jupiter-sized weight. Because sadly, it's been chalked up to more of a mosquito, even in my own heart, more of a mosquito than a monster. Meaning, how many times we run across it? It's small. It's not gonna hurt anybody. It's internal. It's not gonna hurt anybody. Jerry Bridges, a wonderful Christian author, wrote a book called Respectable Sins. I don't know if anybody's read it. It's called Respectable Sins. Too Small of Sins to Notice. Too Small of Sins to Care. Jealousy is morphed into a respectable sin. Doesn't hurt you, then who cares, right? So, my hope by the end of tonight, if I do my job, we'll see that there is no moderation with this respectable sin. I want us to see tonight that jealousy is a rage virus, that jealousy is radioactive, that jealousy is domineering, that jealousy never sleeps. Now, if you don't believe me, I want us to hear this. Amazing quote from author Charles Swindoll and what he thinks about it. This is how he describes jealousy. Like an anger-blind, half-starved rat prowling prowling in the foul-smelling sewers below street level, so is the person caged with the suffocating radius of selfish jealousy. Trapped by resentment and diseased by rage, he feeds on the filth of his own imagination. I know what I'm saying. I've lived my early years in the dismal gases, subterranean pipelines of jealousy, breathing its fumes and obeying its commands. It was gross agony. If you think about it, Christians, or really anybody who's familiar with the old, like the old Testament biblical narratives, think about this. Jealousy has been lurking since God created the world, right? Flip through the pages of Genesis and stare at brothers Jacob and Esau. Flip a few more pages and look at Joseph's brothers who were so jealous they sold their own brother into slavery. Remember Sarah, jealous of Hagar that she could get pregnant, but Sarah could not. And if you keep going back and back and back, we get all the way back to the sons of Adam and Eve. You guys know their names? Cain and Abel. Jealousy. That was Cain's big monster, right? Jealousy. He was jealous of Abel, Abel, like sibling jealousy. He resented his brother. You don't have to read the Bible to know the story, but we've all heard the tales from Sunday school or whatever, but I want us to remember the hot emotion that must have been Cain's face as his eyes were like bloodshot with rage as God smiled upon Abel's sacrifice but found sadness in Cain's. Cain's jealousy didn't subside his own brother until essentially Abel's warm blood was all over the ground. Friends, the first recorded murder in mankind's history was due to jealousy. So the Bible, the God of the Bible is wise to the deadly monster of jealousy. Don't forget the book of James. We just read it. I'm gonna read it to us one more time. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So what? So you murder. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Cain was jealous, so he murdered. Murder of thought. But for Cain, it was quite real. The book of Proverbs essentially writes the words that would be engraved on Abel's tombstone. What's he say? For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Wanting but not getting makes men and women furious, makes you and I furious. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, at least in growing up for me, uh, jealousy was like the concrete bedrock of any and all relationships I had. From best friends to parents to siblings to stepbrothers. I mean, I don't know if anybody else had a similar upbringing. My mother was married five times to highly abusive men, but she was married five times. And so my sister, or our siblings and I, got very used to seeing love come and love go. We got very used to seeing our mother fight for somebody's affection and be jealous and be frustrated. And we would watch this every day as young children. I remember this, the constant battle. If anybody comes here from a broken home, the constant battle of coming home after multiple Christmases, and your mom's like, what, what, he gets you? And your dad would be like, what, she get you? And they try to outdo one another. And you'd almost be embarrassed to show your mom the Christmas presents your dad got you because we're dirt poor. Now, I don't say that to shame my family. I love my mother dearly, but I do want to expose the long-reaching impact jealousy can and does have on children and on children's children, and it touches us all. Many of us have probably seen effects of it in our own life, how it can make one furious, I didn't realize my own monster of jealousy until I started dating my wife 14 years ago. I didn't even realize I was a jealous person. And then all of a sudden I'm dating my wife and she just looks at a billboard. (laughs) What are you doing? You think he's hot? I'm out of (laughs) here. I mean, the internal monster made its way to the surface far earlier. I just had no idea it existed. It was there the entire time though. So for those here who are unchristian, seemingly your issue of jealousy is with the person who has what you want, right? Looks, talent, beauty, a baby, a career, a relationship, money, connection. But for those here who believe in God, they believe and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Like we said in the beginning, we realize that this isn't a you owe me thing. Jealousy is a God owes me thing. To deal with jealousy as Christians is to say, no, no, i got an issue with God. Jealousy is that God owes me. God, you owe me this. God, why don't I have what you've clearly so easily given to them? God, why don't I have this or that and so on and so forth. And it's a grudge against the way God has designed our life. It's a frustration with the way that God has presided over and has led our life. So with that, there are at least two things I'd like to walk through tonight. And it's the purifying elements of what jealousy shows us. It's the purifying elements of what jealousy shows us. First, it shows us ourselves. Number one, it shows us ourselves. Unmasked and unfiltered and fully self-absorbed. I don't know if you guys are familiar, familiar with this, but I think this illustration is very fitting. But jealousy is much like the picture of Dorian Gray. See, I don't know if you know the story again, but Oscar Wilde tells a story that Dorian Gray found the key to unlocking eternal youth and essentially perpetual hedonism. And for him to remain extremely beautiful, he had to possess a a wonderful, beautiful self-portrait. And it was this oil painting that showed him the honest state of his heart the honest state, the true state of his heart, thus projecting it on the portrait. And so the ugliness of his heart would start coming through on the portrait. So as time went on, as days passed, and as Dorian lived more and more selfishly and lovelessly, the painting would then grow more and more and more and more hideous. But in the climax of the story, Dorian seeks to murder the creator of this painting, the artist, the artist who revealed the heart of Dorian Gray. And it ends with ultimately Dorian taking the same blade that he killed the artist with, he's taking it to the canvas. Dorian decided to take it to the canvas and kill and destroy the painting once and for all. And as he sought to do this, obviously the servants downstairs hear a fumble and some thrashing, they go upstairs. And they see the canvas completely untouched, but they see an old, disgusting, grotesque, hideous man lying on the floor with a knife plunged, a blade plunged into his heart. See, jealousy is the oil painting by which we see the inner colors of our heart. And as we desire to take a blade to the creator like Dorian Gray did, God, you owe me, we ultimately plunge the knife into our own hearts. See, friends, just like Dorian Gray, jealousy shows us the things we value most. Jealousy shows us the things we value most, while at the same time rots the things we value most. See, with jealousy, the deepest desires of our hearts are essentially on display, like a Macy's department store window. Everything is on the surface behind the display glass, all that we would otherwise have kept hidden from God and from ourselves, See, for the jealous Jewish community in the Acts 13, they treasured what? Growing crowds, popularity, attention, reputation, wanting but not getting. They're not bothered that people are leaving Judaism. They're not bothered by that. People are leaving and following Jesus. They're bothered by the excitement that it sparks that the message of these two people who show up one time and all this excitement. Well, we could never do that. See, if you were here last week, then you remember what Paul's sermon was ultimately about. See, Paul the preacher was making sure that what we want is not corruptible. What we want is not corruptible. It's not crowds, it's not reputation, it's not recognition. It's not flashier or this or traditional or that. But King Jesus himself. The very thing that these jealous Jewish church leaders, church people took a knife to, just like Dorian did. They wanted him executed. So this is the second thing jealousy exposes. First, it shows us ourselves fully and unfiltered. Second, it shows us God fully and unfiltered. See, if you want to come to know God, then we must know his his names. We must know one of his many crucial names and identity. And it's told to us in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Allow me to read it to you. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, for the whose name is jealous, He's a jealous God. See, God is known by and for many things, but one of them must be His jealousy. If we come to him, we want to know and understand God, we must understand His jealousy. This, as maybe some of you know, is why Oprah Winfrey left her faith. I don't know if you know that or not. Oprah was sitting in pews like this on one Sunday and the preacher told the congregation, God is jealous of you. And she heard that and she goes, what? She goes, "How, how could this God be jealous of me? I don't want to follow a God who is jealous of me. But what she sorely misunderstood is the positive, beautiful side of jealousy, of God's jealousy, See, it's like that of a father to his wandering kids. It's, it's like that of a pursuing husband to an unfaithful wife. Now, God's jealousy easily makes... If you, describing God's jealousy can easily make people uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable at times trying to explain it. See, maybe even right now, Christian or unchristian, if I tell you that God is jealous of your affection that God wants your affection and God wants your intimacy as from one lover to another, perhaps that brings up discomfort. See, the relationship that God calls everybody to is not merely subject to the king as we saw so intensely last week, but rather God calls us into a marriage relationship with him. God calls us into a marriage relationship with him and his jealousy is spousal Shakespeare knew this type of jealousy well when he told the story of Othello. I I love this story. Allow me to read the tortured cry of Othello when he fears that he is losing his bride, Desdemona. This is what he says. This is so rad. He goes, I had rather be a toad and live upon the vapor of a dungeon than keep a corner in the thing I love for others' uses. You see, the relationship God seeks with you and I is that it's characterized by priority and fidelity and intimacy and love. God allows no corner in our lives for others' uses. Do we get that? God allows no corner of our lives, no inch over there and no inch over there, for others to use, for other uses. The relationship that God seeks with you and with I... Christian or unchristian, the relationship that God seeks with us is characterized by priority and fidelity and intimacy and love. So allow me to ask, is God a priority to you to the spousal level? Is God a priority to you to the spousal level? Meaning, I mean, my marriage would be in shambles if I went days without talking to my wife. My marriage would be in shambles if I didn't ask her for opinion, if I didn't love her, if I didn't be with her, if I didn't show affection. Is our relationship with God characterized by showing uh, an understanding or a love that is almost spousal to God? Can we say that? Can you say that there is fidelity and intimacy between you and your king? Does God, again, lastly, just have your affection whenever I have the um, outrageous, wonderful opportunities to officiate weddings, which I've had the opportunity, immense opportunity to do some here, right? I, I did a good job, right? Yeah. It was great. It was great. I was like, That was like the best part of the wedding. It was like me doing the whole thing. Joking. But that's true for your wedding, huh, Catherine? I did your wedding too. But... I think a lot, whenever you you have the chance to officiate a wedding, especially a wedding that wants to be Christ-centered, what comes up a lot is covenant. You talk a lot about covenant. Covenant, which is this adamantium-like, unbreakable, valyrian steel bond between two parties. That's what covenant is. It's something that goes far deeper than any contract. But what solidifies the bond, the covenant, in any wedding are what? Does anybody know? People I did premarital with, what is it? The vows, you're right though. You're right too. We'll get to that in a second. You're jumping the gun. It's all right, it's all right. (laughs) What makes it happen is the vows. It's the public proclamation of promises being made. So God's vows to mankind were spoken on John 19.30. The Gospel of John 19.30 is where Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is paid in full. The marriage relationship is restored. The wanting of your wandering spouse is finished. And what's so earth shattering is What's so earth-shattering to me is when jealousy slithers in and attacks this this idea and bites this idea and crushes this idea that the thing that, that, that thing that we are jealous of, that we could possibly be jealous of, is that is mine or this idea that that is my one opportunity or that is all that I have or that is all that I ever wanted. This beautiful, gorgeous thing that was set up by God is easily undermined by jealousy to want but not receive. God, you owe me more. Friends, this is why jealousy completely again rips the carpet out from underneath the good news of the Christian faith. Because it takes all of these wonderful things, all these amazing things that God gives to his people, given from God himself, relationships, sex, blessings, family work, all these incredible things, and it makes them in and of themselves, these created material, corruptible things, the source of all that is good. That's what jealousy does. It makes those things the source of all that is good. You see, God isn't jealous of us. So when we talk about God's jealousy, he's not jealous of us as we have something to give. Oh, he's jealous of my iPhone 7. No, he's not jealous of us. How many followers I have. He's, no, no. He's jealous for us. Big difference. God is jealous for us because he is all that we need. So please hear me. These things we want, please hear me. This is so important. These things that we want, I'm not saying stop desiring them. Boy, Casey's coming down on a lot of things. So we not desire things? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not up here pounding this music stand saying, stop wanting, stop desiring. That is not what's happening. Even misplaced desire, like the Jewish community with their people, I mean, it's self absorbed and twisted and perverted their desire, but ultimately I would say that they have misplaced desire of wanting a relationship or to be known. So I'm not saying stop desiring or stop, stop wanting. I'm actually saying, and I hope you hear me clearly, I'm actually saying increase your want. I'm actually saying increase your desire for greater. I want us to want things that will not fail us. Are you guys sick of it? It's so exhausting, constantly wanting things and going from one thing to another that just fail us. I lost my job, it failed me. She broke up with me, failed me. The God of the Bible wants us to have increased desires for something, rather someone greater. A want like the shepherd said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning I am so satisfied with my God that he fulfills my every perceived need. Another psalm says it this way, the young lions suffer want. They suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Increase your want not simply for the everyday corruptible things, but for the incorruptible true shepherd. To want him is to have tasted, I mean really, it's to have tasted satisfaction for the first time. We were created to be fulfilled by God alone. So tonight, how will you respond? The Jewish men and women, as jealousy gripped their hearts, drove Paul and Barnabas out. It drove them out. We see that? Something got in the way and what do they do? Get them out of here. How relevant and how true is that for us? Something contradicts our wants and we cast it out. We don't see if there's any truth to it. We don't receive it. We don't taste and see. We cast it out. Friends, has that happened yet in your discipleship groups? Or has it happened yet in your community or your circle of friends where somebody's speaking truth and talking about your wants and your wants are not affirmed? Get out! These Jewish men were so... Wrecked by their jealousy, they just immediately threw them out. I have here, I just want us so badly, this community, to be so weary of our own heart. We are so prone just to throw truth out, casting out community and accountability and those who speak honesty into our life. Look at verse 45 of Acts chapter 13. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict contradict what uh, was spoken by Paul, uh, reviling him. So essentially they undermined him, contradicted him, talked trash. The internal monster of jealousy led to an external war. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. See, the sin of jealousy leads these people to the point. The sin of jealousy leads these people to the point where they thrust the truth of God out. Doing what? Paul and Barnabas were like, dude, you guys just made yourself judge, jury, and executioner. They're basically saying, do you even realize what you have done? You have not heard a word we've said and you've now judged for yourselves eternal life. Now he tells them, we're going to start moving on. We're going onward to those who aren't Jewish. He's telling them, it may have started with you, but it's going to end more different than you could have ever imagined. Look how they ended. verse 47 For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We're going onward. As we're going to see in November, and as we carry on, it's going to be, they're going to be getting more and more and more thrown out and outcasted. Now, that's how they responded to the truth about want and desires and jealousy and the Messiah who satisfies Again, I'm going to ask, how will we respond? For those who hear who are maybe even in moments of jealousy right now, moments of jealousy right now, first thing I would encourage anybody to do at any time we might feel the bite from the monster of jealousy is to confess. I so badly want us to get to the point where we can confess jealousy. See, I can confess anger or guilt all day, but jealousy is a slicker, slimier type of monster. It shows, uh, it shows, you know, perhaps immaturity or it shows like, man, this guy doesn't have a look at He's jealous of something? It's a slimy monster. So I want us to confess it when it comes because the question is not whether we will suffer from jealousy or not because we will. The greater question is, what will we do with our jealousy? Because if this is true, I want us to feel the weight of it. Let me read you priest and author Ronald Royheis' words. He says, once we have admitted, once we have confessed that we are jealous, we are invited to move on and see our response to jealousy as precisely, and get this, the greatest moral and spiritual challenge of our lives. Well, that's an overstatement, right, Right, Ronald? This is not overstated. <laughs> the greatest moral and spiritual challenge of our lives, Christians. This is not overstated. What will you do when your jealousy comes crawling out of the closet and puts himself out there and wants to bite our faces off? How will we respond? You see, like every monster, there is a weak spot. There's a vulnerability. So the monster of jealousy's Achilles' hill is this. If we want to know how to defeat this monster, it is this. I would say just put in your notes or tattoo it on your face or whatever you want to do, it's this. Rejoice. I so badly, we so badly want to be a community that rejoices. Rejoices when somebody has what we do not have. Somebody got that promotion that we did not give. Somebody got pregnant. Somebody got engaged. Somebody got a job. Somebody's moving on. Somebody got the girl. Somebody got the guy. Somebody got the part. I want us to be a church that sees that, feels that, and rejoices. To rejoice by the power of the Holy Spirit, which you nailed it, Courtney, which is the the wedding ring, which seals the vows that were made. And I don't want us to be like, oh, cool, you got the job. That is so great. I twitch, I twitch, I twitch. Like, (laughs) look, God, I'm rejoicing. Kill me. That's not, I'm not asking us right now, this community, to be, you know, disingenuous. That's not what I'm asking. I'm letting us all know right now in this moment that when jealousy comes up like it did for the people of that church, of that synagogue, it is a wrestling match. It is an outright wrestling match. Just to say "I rejoice over something means nothing. It's a wrestling match, fighting, of doing what we can to fight to rejoice, until it becomes a habit or our go-to to take these thoughts captives and turn them into a celebration. You got that job? That, that, is, that is awesome. That, that, no, that is awesome. And in order for us to see it this way, I wanna encourage you right now in our time of response, which you're gonna be doing right now, I told you tonight would be short, to invite him in and to say to God, change my heart. When was the last time you may have prayed that prayer, Christians? change my heart. To invite him into all things. See, if anything that proved to be uncomfortable or a threat to our current way of doing things, and I know there at least have got to be some threats or current way of doing things, if placed ever so gingerly into his care, into his hands, I think may prove to result in a freedom and fulfillment we've never known to exist. Amen? Let me pray for us.